Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Since it's Memorial Day, I'll borrow an expression from the Marines and tweak it a little bit. The few, the committed, the Memorial Day Sunday church attenders, right? Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Please open up your Bibles to the 11th chapter of Romans. Put your finger there. Let me set up the topic for today by just stating a truth about God and illustrating that truth from Scripture because what we're going to cover today is going to require us to embrace the truth that is seen all over in Scripture if we're going to be able to grasp and embrace what we're going to cover in Romans chapter 11. So here's the truth about God that I want to begin with before we get into our text. It could be said in a number of ways. I'll say it in two different ways. Number one, God's ways are higher than ours. Amen? By the way, you did pretty good there, but you have permission to talk back. As long as you agree, but you have permission to talk back, right? God's ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah said that. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the ways of God higher than mankind. Finite, infinite. Another way to say that is that God's ways are inscrutable to us. That our finite ability cannot reach out and grasp the infinity of God's workings and God's ways. We cannot fully chart them. They outstrip our mind's ability to reason and to grasp as much as an infinite line outreaches the dot that is on it. God's ways are higher than ours. God's ways are inscrutable. I'm going to give you a just one illustration that'll be easy to understand. If you know the story from the Old Testament, you'll track with me. I'll try to give just enough if you don't so that it makes sense, but just consider the life of Joseph. Let me ask you this question. Could Joseph, with his finite mind, have understood the ways and the workings of God that developed in his life. And here's the storyline really quickly. 17 years old, given dreams by God, and those dreams communicated the truth of God for his life, that he would become a great leader, a global leader on the earth. And so that young man took those dreams and he shared them with his older brothers. Never a good idea. His older brothers got angry. And they reacted and they hated him and they threw him into a pit and then they saw a caravan of slave traders passing by and they sold him 
for some pieces of silver and he was taken down to Egypt and sold to an Egyptian official where he was a slave in his house and he was a young man, he was a handsome man and Potiphar's wife desired him and attempted to seduce him over and over again and he remained faithful to God and refused her advances and ran from her presence and she was a woman scorned and so she lied about him to her husband and this powerful man had him thrown into prison where he sat and he languished there in the dungeon below the palace and the question is, could Joseph, this dreamer, going to rule the world understand with his finite minds the workings and the ways of God in his life? And the answer is absolutely not. Because from ground level, looking around at his life, it appeared as if the plan of God for him was being decimated piece by piece and arriving at a place of total destruction. And yet what we know from the story of Joseph is that the very things that looked like the plan of God was being thwarted were the very things that were catapulting Joseph into the very plan of God for his life, taking him right to the country that he needed to be in, right to the house that he needed to be in, right into the dungeon that he needed to be at so that he could hear the dreams and interpret the dreams of Pharaoh's butler and baker. And then Pharaoh had a dream and Joseph was called up to the palace as the interpreter of the dream and he interpreted Pharaoh's dream and he was so prepared after 13 years of going what it looked like the wrong direction away from the plan of God to where he said, Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen in the next 14 years in your kingdom. And without being asked for his opinion said, let me give you a 14-year plan on how to survive what's coming and prosper. And he was made ruler over the whole land. The point being, God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are inscrutable. And here's what we can know. We can only know about God's eternal ways, that which he has determined to reveal to us. That's all that we can know. And I'll say a second truth about that. We should know all or attempt to learn all that he has told us about his ways. So I say that as a setup for the 11th chapter of Romans. We're going to pick up the text in a moment in verse 11 and go down today through verse 15. But in order to understand the sequence of thought here, I need to remind you of what's come in Romans chapter 11. In the first six verses of chapter 11, here is what Paul has taught us. Paul has said that God, though Israel had rejected Jesus Christ in a wholesale fashion, God in His sovereignty had saved a remnant within Israel and kept them for Himself. 
and that God always saves a remnant. Paul used Israel's Old Testament history to prove that and said today there's a remnant of Jews. Though in wholesale fashion they've rejected Christ, God in His sovereignty has saved and secured a remnant for Himself. And that is true today. Romans 1.6, Romans 11.1 through 6 is that God has worked in Israel saving a remnant in the midst of their wholesale rejection. Here's the second thing that Paul showed us in verses 7 through 10. Those that God didn't save within Israel that had persisted in their rejection of Christ, He had hardened them in their sin. And what that means is that He had given them over to the power of their sin. He had let their sin run in its full strength in their life. He had taken off His restraining grace and they had been given over by the hardening of God in their rejection of Christ and found themselves in a very terrible, precarious position. That's the setup. That's the setup. So God... Because Israel had rejected Christ, God had rejected them, but He didn't reject all of them. He had kept a remnant. Now, Paul is going to ask and answer another significant question, beginning in verse 11 about Israel. Let's read that from 11, the first half of verse 11. Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And he answers in the emphatic, by no means. Let me just park there a minute and explain what Paul is saying. First of all, the they. Who's the they? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? The they is the nation of Israel. It's the ones that had rejected Christ. And what happened to them is they stumbled over Christ. And here's why they stumbled. The Jews were not looking for the Jesus that came. The Jews were looking for a Messiah that was going to come very differently than Jesus Christ came. You see, Jesus Christ came in humility as a servant. Jesus Christ came to this no-named peasant family and Jesus Christ grew up in a pauper's home and Jesus Christ lived as a servant and Jesus Christ hung out with the lowly and Jesus Christ died on a cross. That is not the Savior that the Jews were looking for. They stumbled over Him. Though He was right there in front of them, though they heard His teaching as teaching that No one had ever spoken before, though they saw His power in the miracles that that He performed. Though He was right there in front of them, they stumbled over Him because He was not the Christ, the Messiah that they had wanted. He didn't provide the salvation that they were looking for. And then it says... Look closely at it. So I ask, did they stumble 
in order that they might fall. What does that mean, in order that they might fall? Well, the reference there is talking about a final reality. In other words, we could say it like this. Did Israel, because of their rejection of Jesus Christ, get to the place stumbling over him, where God said, I'm done with Israel. I am wiping my hands from them. My, my book is closing on them. No longer are they identified as my people, and I am closing that book, and they are now once and forever outside of my grace, fallen outside of my grace. And Paul says, is that what happened to Israel? Did they stumble so as to fall? And his answer is an emphatic, by no means. Like, that's an impossibility. It's as strong as he can make the negative statement here in the Greek that is absolutely not true. So what Paul is doing here is he is first of all answering what the purpose for the stumbling of Israel was not. Now, let me explain that a little closer. Look carefully at the words in the statement. Let me read it again. Did they stumble in order that they may fall? That is a good translation of the Greek phrase. Those three words, in order that, are a statement of purpose. In other words, Paul is asking here, was the purpose of the rejection of Christ so that they would fall permanently? Was that the purpose that God had in mind? I'm going to say that even a different way based upon the context of verses 7 through 10 that we looked at last time we were here, the hardening of God. We could say it like this. Was the purpose behind Israel's rejecting of Christ and God hardening them in their sin in order that or for the purpose of them falling irrevocably away from the grace of God, lost there forever, never to return. And Paul's answer is, no, that was not the purpose that God had in mind for Israel's rejection of her Messiah and God's hardening of them in that rejection. It is not ultimate and complete rejection of Israel. So then, the question begs itself, what is the purpose? And what Paul does is that he, in the bottom of verse 11, he begins to answer what the purpose of God was for the rejection of Israel and God's hardening them in that rejection. Let's look at it, verse 11b. Rather, in other words, no, it wasn't for that that purpose, it's for this purpose. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Stop right there. So what Paul gives here as the reason for Israel's rejection of 
their Messiah, Jesus, and God's hardening them in their rejection is ultimately that salvation would come to the Gentile people. Israel's rejection of Christ and God's subsequent rejection of them because of that leading to salvation for the Gentiles. So that's what Paul says. Let's see if that is a good translation by checking it with other scriptures. Let me just give you one from the life of Jesus, one parable from the life of Jesus, and then I'm going to give you some other illustrations or examples in the book of Acts. Here's what Jesus taught in Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus tells a parable, parable of a master who had some land. He planted a vineyard in the land and he put tenants over the land to care for it while that was growing. And when it came time for harvest, Jesus said that master sent servants servants to go and gather in the harvest from his property, from his crop, and the tenants took the servants and they mistreated them and they beat them and they killed them and the master sent more servants and they were treated the same and then finally the master said, I know what I'll do, I'll send my son. And the tenants saw the son coming and said, ah, here's the heir. Let's kill him. And Jesus used that example then to teach a lesson to the nation of Israel. Obviously, using that parable to point to himself, he is the very son that God had sent into the world to bring about a harvest. And he has servants that he wants to work in his harvest field. But Jesus said, here's what happens when the people that are supposed to bring in the harvest do not do it. Jesus said, a new people will be used by God to bring in the harvest. Saying to Israel, You will not work to bring in the kingdom of God. God is going to bring in a new people to bring in the harvest. A Gentile people to bring in the harvest. It was the very same teaching that Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 11. Now let me give you some examples of that in the book of Acts. So again, here's the principle the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah becomes the occasion for God to do a work of salvation among the Gentiles. Israel's rejection leading to Gentile salvation. That's the principle that Paul taught. That's the principle Jesus taught in Matthew 21. Let's see what the book of Acts unfolds. Let's start with Stephen, Acts chapter 7. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was a follower of Christ, a Jew, powerful in word and deed. And he was falsely accused by those who could not stand up to the wisdom by which he spoke, and it made them mad, and so they 
slandered him to the religious leaders, and Stephen was brought before the high priest, and he was questioned by the Jewish high priest. And in that questioning, Stephen preached a sermon. And what he did was he proclaimed from the Old Testament the truth about the coming of the Messiah and proved that Jesus was in fact the Messiah that was promised. And then he ended that sermon saying, and you to the religious leaders, you crucified him, putting him to death. You killed the Messiah the one that you had waited so long for. And they obviously didn't want to hear that. They covered their ears. They dragged Stephen outside of the city and they stoned him there in their hatred. They were continuing their rejection of the truth of Jesus. And in that stoning, what happened was it triggered an incredible persecution of Christians a wholesale persecution of Christians, and Jerusalem was the one church in the world of that day. The Christians were all located at Jerusalem. It hadn't spread out yet. And so what happened because of that persecution is that believers, thousands of believers in Jerusalem were dispersed throughout all of the regions And guess what they did as they went? They took the truth of the message of the good news of Jesus with them and they proclaimed it. And guess who they proclaimed it to? Gentiles. And guess what happened? Gentiles got saved. Principle. The rejection of the Jews of Jesus as their Messiah leading to salvation of the Gentiles. Case in point, Stephen. Let's go to the next chapter in Acts. Acts chapter 8. Here we have Philip. Philip is one of the believers that was persecuted and fled because of the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that began. And Philip went up to an Ethiopian, a Gentile, And he proclaimed the gospel to that Gentile. And when he had led him to Christ and baptized him, the Spirit took him away. And he began going from town to town, proclaiming the truth of Jesus to Gentile people. The persecution in association with the rejection of the Jews led to the salvation among the Gentiles. Here's what Luke gives us. The author of Acts gives us four different times in Acts. Luke records specifically that the rejection of the Jews, their persistence in rejecting their Messiah, set up the salvation being taken and offered to the Gentiles. Here's what Paul would do. Paul would travel from town to town, and when he would go into a town, do you know where Paul would go first in the towns that he visited? Do you know? He would go to the Jewish synagogue, and he would proclaim the good news of Jesus in the Jewish synagogue. And almost in a wholesale fashion, they would reject Christ and reject His message. And Paul would say, okay, because you count it unworthy to receive life through Christ, I'm taking my message to who? 
to the Gentiles. You see, the principle over and over again, stated by Jesus, carried out down through Acts, reiterated here in Romans chapter 11, is that one of the things that God does in His inscrutable ways and His purposes that are higher than ours is that he takes the very rejection of the Jews to the person of Jesus Christ and he uses that and his hardening of them to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles, a repeated theme in Scripture. Now, just ask you rhetorically, would you do it that way? (laughs) I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have come up with a radically different way because my ways are not as high as His ways. His ways are higher than mine as the heavens are above the earth. And I wouldn't have seen that as a good way, but it has turned out to be an incredible way for the Gentiles by the millions. And then... Paul says, that is not all. There is something else that he's done. Look at verse 11 again, beginning in the middle of the verse. Again, rather, through their trespass, the Jews' trespass, the rejection of Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then listen to this, so as to make Israel jealous. Paul is giving a second reason here behind this Jewish rejection of Christ and God's hardening over them. And here's what he says. First of all, because the Jews rejected Christ and God hardened them in that, what's going to happen is that there is going to be the gospel going to the Gentiles and a great number of the Gentiles are going to come in. And then Paul says, and eventually what's going to happen is that the Gentiles receiving the grace of God through Christ is going to incite the Jews to jealousy. Now what does that mean? It's going to incite them to jealousy so as to make the Jews jealous. Well, we'll see that in the latter part of this chapter and the verses that's come particularly down in verse 15 that we'll end with today. But the point is this. The Jews are going to see what God is doing among the Gentiles. Doing what? Well, they are now in the covenant of God. They are receiving the incredible blessings of God being poured out upon them. The presence of God is with them. The power of God is manifest among them. Do you know what all those things were? That's what the Jews had in the Old Testament. They were the covenant people of God. They had the presence of God that dwelt with them. They had the power of God working among them and for them among the nations, other nations of the world. But now that's taking place in Paul's day and in our day among the Gentiles as the Jews have rejected Christ. Now the Gentiles are coming in and what Paul says is one day the Jews are going to wake up and they're going to see what God is doing among Gentile people and they're going to be jealous saying, I want that. And they're going to turn their hearts to Jesus Christ and the Savior that they have rejected. 
And they're going to, what Paul is going to tell us later in chapter 11, is they're going to come back to Christ in wholesale fashion. Just like there was only now in Paul's day and our day a remnant of Jews that are saved. The rest have rejected him and are hardened by God. That's going to completely turn around and that remnant is going to become a great majority because the Gentiles and what God is doing among them is going to be used by the sovereign God to incite Israel to jealousy and in so doing bring about a credible revival and harvest among His people Israel. So here's what God is doing. Credible picture about the ways and the workings of God that is higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Paul is teaching here what God is doing is He's superseding over the sinful actions of His people Israel and their rejection of Christ. And He's using that to bring in the Gentiles. And then He's going to use the salvation of the Gentiles in the future to bring about this turning of hearts back toward Christ among His people. Now, it seems like that's incredible evidence that that is an accurate translation of the text as seen not only in what Paul says in the situation of his day, but seen in the teachings of Jesus, seen in the developing story of Acts. But watch how Paul just goes on to further verify that that is a proper interpretation. Verses 13 and 14. Watch what he does here. Or, no, back to verse 12 first. Verse 12. Now if their trespass, the Jewish rejection of Christ, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So he is here reiterating what he has been saying. Israel's rejection of Christ leads to an incredible move about God among the Gentiles, and then eventually God working among the Gentiles is going to bring about the full inclusion of the Jews. The Greek word there for full inclusion, taken not only in its meaning but in its context, has to carry the idea of a numerical value, not a specific number, but a numerical value meaning this. Just like in Paul's day and in our day, there's a small number, a remnant of Jews that are Messianic Jews that are saved. In the end, on a day when they get jealous over what God does among the Gentiles, there's going to be a vast majority of them that are going to be saved. In other words, the few are going to become the full inclusion. God is going to work in power to bring about an incredible transformation in Israel. And He's going to turn them back to Jesus Christ and they're going to see because of what God is doing among the Gentiles, oh, look, Jesus is our Messiah. We missed it 
but he really is the one. Scripture says that God is going to, in chapter 11, the end of chapter 11 specifically, God is going to turn disobedience from Judah. In other words, God is going to work sovereignly and he's going to turn the hearts of Israel back to Jesus and he's going to do it by inciting them through the work he is doing among the Gentiles. Now watch how he affirms that that is the correct interpretation. Verses 13 and 14, he uses himself and his ministry as an example. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. He's writing to the church at Rome. It was primarily a Gentile church. He writes, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. See, what Paul is saying here is in a very small microcosm way, I am conducting my ministry, he says, on this principle. When I get out among the Jews, I make a lot of my ministry to the Gentiles. I make sure that they know what God is doing among you Gentiles. Why? Because I want to stir them up to jealousy so that at least some of them will become jealous and turn their hearts to Christ seeing what God is doing among the Gentile people. So Paul is saying, my own ministry is structured like that and it's working that way in a microcosm way in one day it's going to happen in a full inclusion. It's going to happen in a grand scale where this mass number of Gentiles, in fact, Scripture says the full number in the latter part of chapter 11, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, then there's going to be this turning of Israel's hearts back to Jesus Christ because they have been stirred up to jealousy because of what God is doing among the Gentile people. Then comes verse 15 to further again confirm that interpretation. Verse 15, for if their rejection, the Jews' rejection, means the reconciliation of the world, Jews rejected Christ, God used that as the occasion to bring about a mighty move of God among the Gentiles unto salvation. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? What does that mean? What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Well, the context really gives only one interpretation possible for that, and it's this, as seen throughout Scripture Prior to salvation, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead. We are stone-hearted. We cannot respond or feel the truth and the things of God in our hearts. We are rebels at heart. Scripture says enemies of God. We are blind to the truth of Jesus Christ. We are deaf to the truth of God in the gospel. We cannot have the ability with a dead spiritual mind to understand spiritual things. Why? Because they can only be discerned spiritually. And so we're in this dead condition, and what has to happen is life has to replace death. And ladies and gentlemen, that's regeneration. That's 
what the Spirit of God does when He regenerates a person and brings them from death to life, wakes them up so they can see and hear and understand the truth of Jesus Christ, granting them faith and repentance so that then and only then do they receive Christ as their Savior. Now they have a heart to do it. The heart of stone is gone. The heart of after God has been placed within them in regeneration and they put their faith in Jesus and accept Him as their Savior. That has to happen in the life of everyone that is saved. And so what Paul is saying here is here's what's going to take place when the full number of the Gentiles have come in Israel is going to be incited to jealousy and what's going to happen is they're going to turn back to Christ. God is going to take them from death to life, from spiritual death in their sin and rejection to spiritual life. There's going to be a revival among the Jewish people. So application. Here we are in America, Anchorage, Alaska, seemingly fairly far removed from the truth that we're talking about here, except that we are among the Gentiles that are being saved because of the rejection of the Jews of their Messiah and God's hardening of them. We're a part of the blessing that God is bringing about as a result of that sin, God's sovereign and able to do that. But here's a point for you and me to bring right to our doorstep today. And the point is this, God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is working this global, universal, throughout all of human history, plan of salvation where He is superseding even over the wickedness and persistent rebellion of mankind to perfectly accomplish and fulfill His plan that He is the God whose ways are higher than our ways. He's the God whose ways are inscrutable. And all we can know is what He has told us. But what He has told us, we should know. And here is what He is telling us here by His Spirit in His inspired word this morning. And it's this. Nothing is impossible for God. What is in your life that looks like an impossibility? Where is there death in your life? Where is there hopelessness? Where have you given up and said, it can never change? I give you the truth of the text today. God is the God of the impossible. God always accomplishes to the full measure everything that He determines to accomplish. He is going to bring in the full number of the Gentiles. There's going to be a full inclusion of them and that when He has accomplished that, He is going to sovereignly work and turn the rebellious heart of Israel back to His Son, their Messiah, and bring in the full inclusion of the Jews and then He is going to return on that great and glorious day. That's the sovereign God that is over your life. Where are you facing an impossibility? Where is there death that needs life? Where is there relationships that for all practical purposes on this level on earth look like they're dead, they're hopeless, they're done? That's 
not in God's vocabulary. God is bigger and stronger. You got a marriage that is in your mind hopeless. There's no such thing with God. He's sovereign. You have a child that is wayward and from all apparent earthly vantage point is unmovable. God, just like he's going to do from, for Israel, can in a moment turn his heart to the Messiah and lead him or her to salvation. It's not hopeless. You got an addiction that is bigger than you and you've tried and you can't stop it. God is bigger than that. He's the sovereign God of the universe who accomplishes every one of his purposes and his promises for his children. And God promises this. He knows the plans he has for you, not to hurt you, but to help you and to give you a hope and a future. The promises of God, all of them are yes and amen in Christ. What you need to do when you're facing the impossible, you need to go to the promises of God and remember that God is sovereign in his working. And when it looks like, when it looks like, like it looked for Joseph, that you are being catapulted away from the plan of God for you and going from the dream to the death of the dream and into the pit and into the prison and languishing there in the dungeon seemingly as far away as you can get from the plan of God. Those can be the very things God is using to catapult you right to the place where when he's ready in his time, will say the word and he'll take you from the prison to the palace. He'll take you from hopelessness to victory. He'll take you from defeat to strength. He'll take the things that are dead in your life and he'll breathe life into them and do what only he can do, bringing an incredible transformation for your good and his glory. That's the kind of God that he is. That's the kind of God he has always been. That's the kind of God Paul is teaching us about today. And that's the kind of God that history is going to see work every one of his purposes to their complete fulfillment. Praise be his name. Would you please stand? Father, my heart is overwhelmed by the truth of who you are. Just a little picture that you have shown me and shown us today about you and your ways and your workings. They truly are higher than ours, high as the heavens are above the earth. They are inscrutable beyond searching out in their depth. And yet, here's what we can know. We can know what you showed us. And we should know all that you've shown us about how you work and move in your salvation purposes. And so I pray that the truth behind this today of a sovereign loving, promise-keeping God would go right to our hearts and invade the areas of defeat and hopelessness and would speak life where there's death. 
Victory where there's defeat. Courage where people have given up. They would take you at your word even when all around them says different. And that in your due time, you'd take them from the prison to the palace. You'd use even the sin around them and even taking place in them, superseding that to accomplish your good, pleasing, and perfect will. I pray for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.